today on Against the Grain. What stance did W.E.B. Du Bois, the renowned sociologist and historian, take toward race and class? Michael Borovoy argues that Du Bois was a pioneer of black Marxism. I'm C.S., the UC Berkeley-based sociologist, talks about the significance in Du Bois's writings of the Reconstruction Era and much more coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Few thinkers and writers have been more important and influential than W.E.B. Du Bois. Yet many of our understandings of Du Bois, who lived from 1868 to 1963, are schematic and simplistic. He was a passionate advocate for African Americans. He wrote the seminal volume, The Souls of Black Folk. He was one of the founders of the NAACP. Such statements are true, yet they fail to address the richness and complexity of Du Bois's thought and trajectory. Michael Bourvoy, professor of sociology at UC Berkeley, has written a lot in recent years about Du Bois, including an essay for the forthcoming volume, The Oxford Handbook of W.E.B. Du Bois. Today, we present part one of a two-part interview with Michael Borovoy that considers Du Bois's life trajectory and his views on race, racism, class, and emancipatory politics. When Michael and I connected recently, I noted that many people, when they talk about Marxism, refer to it as if there is one Marxism. I asked him whether Marxism should be thought of in the singular. There is indeed, as you said, um, a view that somehow... Marxism can actually be reduced to the writings of Marx and Engels, but it misses the whole history of Marxism. What's so important about Marxism is that it is a tradition that actually develops in accordance with the anomalies and contradictions it generates in different places at different times. Of course, Marx and Engels were very much rooted in the 19th century very much shaped by their experiences in the 19th century. But Marxists have continually developed the ideas of Marx and Engels. Indeed, on occasions, transformed those ideas. So we can talk about a German Marxism reflecting the period of the flourishing of socialism in Germany from 1890 to 1920. Talk about a Russian Marxism, a Marxism that perhaps um, flourished before, during, and immediately after the Russian Revolution, a Marxism that became the ideology of the Soviet Union and became a sort of degenerate branch of, of Marxism. We can look at the um, response to Russian Marxism in what we call, now call Western Marxism, a Marxism that developed around the Frankfurt School, um, Marxism that developed in different places in Europe as a reaction to the sort of the monolithic character of Marxist-Leninism and a response to the common turn. can talk about third world Marxism, it was then associated with such people as Franz Fanon, Chairman Mao, and Today, I think we're going to be talking about what I call black Marxism, a view of the capitalist world from the standpoint of the black subjugated race. Um, and W.B. Du Bois, in my view, became, he wasn't always, but he became a major figure um, in, in, in the development of black Marxism. And who are black Marxism, who were black Marxism's main thinkers, prominent figures other than Du Bois? Well, from my point of view, the major figures, and this is controversial, and there are many such figures, but for me, at any rate, Franz Fanon, the uh, Martinican philosopher, psychiatrist, um, psychoanalyst, and supporter of the FLN, the liberation struggle in Algeria, he was a major figure in the development of a African perspective on colonialism and post-colonialism. Um, 
I might include C.L.R. James, the famous author of the book Black Jacobins, the first major slave revolt that's worked with the ideals of the French Revolution. Um, and I would include Stuart Hall, a more, con a more contemporary, though he died a few years ago. Um, uh, uh, Stuart Hall, a Jamaican, originally Jamaican Marxist who came to England and became a major figure, intellectual figure uh, in Britain before the Thatcher period, during the Thatcher period and afterwards, um, and, and, and the founder of the School of, of, of Cultural Studies in England. Um, so these are, the, these are the four I would concentrate on if I had the chance. When people think of W.E.B. Du Bois, best known for his book, The Souls of Black Folk, published in 1903, they may not think of Marx or, or Marxism right away. But, but what do you say to people who, who just don't necessarily focus on Du Bois's uh, Marxist understandings and writings? Well, I say that, you know, just as there are many Marxisms, there are many Du Boisians. And one of the most interesting things about Du Bois is the way he changes his view of the world as he proceeds in his political engagements and in his academic, uh, more academic work. I mean, one of the amazing things about Du Bois is that he is simultaneously a major intellectual figure, but also a, a political figure, a major supporter of civil rights movements, the Pan-African movement, and after the Second World War, a major spokesperson for um, an anti-nuclear, um, worldwide anti-nuclear movement. So I say, I say to, to people, who want to focus on souls of black folk yes that's the early work and um, the souls of black folk and i might add the philadelphia negro philadelphia negro published in 1899 is seen to be the canonical work uh, or the early canonical work of, of, of urban sociology and and the souls of black folk addresses a much broader audience if if the philadelphia negro was a was a professional study of the Seventh Ward in Philadelphia done by himself as a partisan observer and as an interviewer. The, the souls of black folk um, derive very much from his work with the Atlanta School that he, he led um, while he was at Atlanta University from 1897 to 1910. Um, but it is a set of literary essays that really um, aims at a much broader audience and the souls of black folk is very much concerned with convincing um, convincing whites uh, that actually African Americans are human beings and um, they are indeed extremely moving essays about his own life and about the life in the South after Reconstruction during Jim Crow and, and he of course had a direct experience of that life whether it was in Georgia when he was at the University of Atlanta or when he was a student at Fisk in Tennessee. Uh, so yes, so that's a very particular part of his life in which he was trying to um, establish the ways in which African Americans um, in the rural areas and in the urban areas are shaped by the social forces around them, shaped by discrimination, shaped by the transition from slavery, and, and they behave in, in response to those social forces. He was in indeed being a one of the very early sociologists. Um, but at this time, though he had been in Germany, crucial in a crucial two years, 1892-94, which is where he developed his passion for sociology. And it was also the time where he was attending Social Democratic Party meetings. Um, so he was aware of the socialist movement throughout uh, the time he was writing The Philadelphia Negro and The Souls of Black Folk. But there are really very few intimations of that socialism in that writing. That would come later. Well, let's talk about W.E.B. Du Bois's turn to politics. You write that uh, he grew up, uh, I think he was born in, in Massachusetts, Great Barrington. He did not encounter a lot of overt racism growing up. He uh, was very academically focused. He got a Ph.D. from Harvard in 1895. Uh, the first African-American to get a Ph.D. from that institution. He, as, as you, you mentioned, Berlin, and uh, you write that, but for uh, maybe a technicality, I think a residency 
issue. He he would have. I mean, he essentially earned a, another PhD from the University of Berlin. Um, he applied for university faculty positions. Uh, he taught at the University of Pennsylvania for a while, and as you said, Atlanta University. So so he was trying to study and learn and get uh, an academic position, which he had difficulty with because of his race. So why did he turn to politics? What what happened such that he uh, his focus turned toward uh, political activity and toward uh, what would become the NAACP? Well, as you were saying, you know, he he comes back to the United States from from Berlin in 1894, and he's now looking for a job, and there's no chance for him as an African American to get a job in a major university to which he rightly belonged. I mean, his credentials are already at that time extraordinary. Instead, he takes a job and has to take a job at a um, historically black university. He gets a job actually at Wilberforce University in Ohio, um, where he is forced to teach classics. He is miserable there um, as an academic. He lasts for about two years and little less. And it actually does not teach at, um, in, in Philadelphia, at the University of Pennsylvania. He is given an assistantship to actually conduct the study that becomes the Philadelphia Negro, which he publishes in, in 1899. As I say, one of, one of the very early sociology studies and perhaps the best of the early sociology studies when we think about case studies of urban life. And of course, he's focused very much on the urban life of African-Americans. He's given this job because um, the powers that be in Philadelphia um, think that the problem of the political order in Philadelphia, that that political order is problematic precisely because of the presence of African-Americans. Anyway, he does a, a very interesting study there, and he hopes by doing such studies, and this is the influence perhaps of his German experience, by doing such studies of the site of Philadelphia Negro and of the studies of the African-American occupations and communities in the South, that this science, which he is very meticulous about, this science will actually influence the wider population, particularly the white population, convince them that indeed um, African-Americans do belong to the human race belong to the United States and should be taken seriously. He had enormous faith in the beginning in the power um, of, of science and the accumulation of knowledge. But he sees, first of all, that it's very difficult for him to actually carry out these studies because the resources are limited. And at that time, Booker T. Washington is a sort of gatekeeper of um, many of the resources going to the African-American community, particularly academic community. Um, so he's, he's finding his life in the university world, in the academic world, both in the University of Atlanta, but also beyond that, as very frustrating, being denied resources and opportunities, um, but also sees that his science is not having an impact that it should, or that he hoped, and instead he begins to think that he has to sort of move in a different direction. Michael Borovoy joins me. He's professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. And he's written a lot in recent years about W.E.B. Du Bois, including an essay that will be part of the forthcoming volume, The Oxford Handbook of W.E.B. Du Bois. I'm C.S., and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you were talking about Du Bois's trajectory, and I, I'm going to guess that you were going to begin to talk about Du Bois's engagement with what was called the Niagara Movement, and then uh, the nascent NAACP. So, so the Niagara Movement, what was that about, and how did Du Bois get involved in it? Yeah, I think it was the frustration of being an academic, um, the recognition that his academic work was really not affecting the racism that was all around him in the South, and the existence of an emergent 
group of radical, black radical intellectuals um, that brought him together with people who wanted to actually develop a civil rights movement. Um, many of them were actually also liberal whites, some socialist whites. And they first developed the Niagara movement in 1905 and this became the NAACP in 1910, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Right, and, and Du Bois is, is famous for being the founding editor of The Crisis, which was the uh, NAACP magazine, the national magazine. Um, what did he, he focus on? What did he write about? What was his, how would you characterize his involvement with, with the early NAACP? His involvement with the NAACP was, did revolve around the magazine that he founded, The Crisis, in 1910. He left the University of Atlanta in 1910 to actually be full-time editor, a member of the NAACP. Um, and the question is, what didn't he write about? What didn't he contribute in The Crisis? This was a very popular, the most popular, became the most popular of the intellectual magazines for African-Americans for the 24 years he edited it from 1910 to 1934. Um, and it ranged from issues around uh, anti-colonial struggles in different parts of the world to civil rights organizations in the United States to the history of uh, the United States from a standpoint of African-Americans. Indeed, he actually at one point started a, a, a magazine, sort of an offshoot, uh, called The Brownies, which was a magazine designed for young African-American children um, to sort of educate them in the history of their race. Um, so there's nothing he didn't touch in this amazing magazine, The Crisis. I want to move back to the, the Souls of Black Folk, written again, or published in 1903. You've uh, said a number of things about it. What you haven't said is uh, something you write. You call his, Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk, a study in the phenomenology of racism. A defined phenomenology for us. It, this may not be easy to talk about very quickly. And, and talk about what, what in Du Bois's book, Souls of Black Folk, you know, evinces or emphasizes a distinctly phenomenological analysis of, of racism and of blackness. Right. In the Philadelphia Negro, Du Bois has really been very scientific. He's been the objective outsider. And he saw a lot of quantitative analysis of the and changing character of the African-American population. Um, and indeed, a sort of analysis of the stratification is based on a set of interviews he does himself. Souls of Black Folk is based on very much his experiences. So when I say the phenomenology of racism, I'm really talking about the very experience of racism. He famously talks about the concept of double consciousness, the idea that the way that African-Americans are conducting and ordering their lives is very much shaped um, by this duality that on the one hand they are African-Americans, part of the black population, and on the other hand they are Americans. And he, at the center of this idea of the double consciousness is the ways in which um, the white population sort of sets the terms under which the African-Americans exist and experience their world. Um, there are some beautiful essays in The Souls of Black Folk. For example, the essay where he describes um, the death um, of his firstborn, Berghardt, in 1899 um, in Atlanta and how um, Berghardt dies at, before, he's, before he's two years old because of the racially discriminatory medical profession. Um, and, and he raises, you know, he, he reflects on the issue. In what ways um, was this a good thing? That, you know, that Berghardt wouldn't have to suffer the racism in the United States. 
Um, so there are, so there are essays of that character. There are essays of the um, experience of poverty um, in in rural Tennessee. When he is at the Fisk University, he goes into the rural areas in the summers and as a teacher, and he describes the conditions he faces that that, that African Americans face there in, in in the Jim Crow era, and this and and the emerging stratification of that society. There's a very well-known essay on the, on the meaning of progress. And he asks, you know, what progress has there been since uh, emancipation? Um, and talks about the sharecroppers. Um, so that what I'm trying to get across is in, with, with the idea of the phenomenology of racism. It is the very experience of African-Americans in Georgia and, and, and in Tennessee that he wants to convey to a much broader population, largely white, um, to convince them that you know these are people. Even though, even though their conditions of existence are appalling, nonetheless, that they are struggling um, for a sort of limited amount uh, of education, are struggling for survival, trying to build community, trying to build cooperatives. Um, so he's trying to show how people, how African Americans are trying to construct uh, their lives in these very difficult circumstances. To change the situation of blacks in the U.S., at this point in his career, was Du Bois, was his stance that it was more about whites changing their opinions about blacks and uh, taking action to ameliorate their situation? Or was it more about uh, African-Americans rising up and asserting their power and uh, taking power in the sense of political power, civil rights, that kind of thing? Well, Souls of Black Folk is published in 1903. Some of the essays were from years before. Um, and he's still trying to convince whites about the vitality and the contributions of African-Americans to U.S. society. But once he takes over the crisis in 1910, his politics, in my view, changed dramatically. He has given up trying to convince whites that African-Americans are human. And he's particularly concerned. One of the reasons why he does an analysis of stratification, for example, in the Philadelphia Negro, is to show there is what he calls the talented tenth. But whites are not even interested in the talented tenth, of which he, of course, is a, is a member. And, and he complains that whites are always reducing their assessment of African-Americans to what he calls the submerged tenth, what he regards to be the more pathological uh, expression of African-American life. He changes his views and begins to now address African-Americans. And in, famously in the, an essay um, in 1920 from my favorite book, Darkwater, uh, an essay called The Souls of White Folk. In that essay, he's really saying to African-Americans, you know, these whites, they are inhuman. Just look at the way, not only the way they treat us, but look at the way they treat one another. And he is referring to World War I and the brutality of European nations towards one another in World War I. A brutality, an aggressive war that um, Du Bois, in a very original move, um, explains in terms of struggle amongst European nations for control of, of particularly African countries. It's a control of colonial territories that is behind World War I and leads to um, the brutality among European nations. Um, so he's now talking to African Americans um, and trying to sort of build a sense of their own distinctive civilization. He writes a, a book in 1915 uh, called The Negro, which is an, an elaboration of what he has learned about the history of Africa, the pre-colonial history of Africa. And interestingly, in 1910, or I think it may be 11, he writes a book which is a biography of John Brown. And there you see immediately um, a shift in the politics because he uses John Brown's life to sort of establish the importance of a militant struggle against the existing racial order. Um, so he, he's really shifting his politics quite dramatically um, as he moves out of the university in 1910 and becomes editor of the crisis. 
This is Against of the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Michael Borovoy joins me, B-U-R-A-W-O-Y. He teaches sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. He's author of numerous books, including most recently Public Sociology, as well as Symbolic Violence, Conversations with Bourdieu, and Manufacturing Consent, Changes in the Labor Process Under Monopoly Capitalism. We are talking about some stuff he's written in recent years about W.E.B. Du Bois, the American sociologist, historian, writer, social critic, and activist. When and where did Du Bois first encounter uh, socialism, and what did he think of, of the Socialist Party, which he joined in 1911? He first encountered socialism when he was in Germany in 1892, um, 1892 to 94, when he attended meetings of the social, local Social Democratic Party in Berlin. So he was quite conversant with the debates within the Socialist Party. Um, the first evidence of his own commitments to socialism that I have found is in 1907 in a journal he then edited um, called Horizon. But his overt commitment to socialism um, is perhaps best exemplified in this book that I mentioned earlier called Darkwater, published in 1920. In that book, he writes about a utopian idea of socialism, very much shaped by visions amongst Marxists, including Marx and Engels themselves. Um, perhaps one of the most interesting um, essays uh, in Darkwater is his account of the race riot in East St. Louis in 1917. He describes that um, uh, as a moment in history when white capital is accumulating and developing in East St. Louis, drawing on white labor from Europe and cheap black labor from the South. During the war, the white labor from Europe is cut off and capitalists move to actually recruit ever more cheap black labor from the South. And the two groups, the white labor, so a sort of labor aristocracy, you might say, and the cheap black labor come into conflict with one another as white labor begins to recognize how threatened it is by the cheap black labor that has been imported from the South. White labor, rather than building an alliance with black labor, um, seeks an alliance with white capital against black labor, hence the emergent riot. This essay is framed as a conversation with his students. And he says, so what's the solution to this problem? And he says at the end, the last three or four pages of the essay are all about the solution being socialism, that we have to socialize the means of production, bring them into public ownership, to actually extend democracy um, from the political realm to the economic realm. There has to be some sort of participatory democracy, he's arguing for. But, he says, this vision of socialism can only take place if we solve the race problem. And that means for Du Bois that white and black workers have got to be united in their struggle against capitalism. And then he says, the socialists themselves are not behind this project. They are not sufficiently committed to the socialist project that will bring in, that will bring in all races. And Du Bois says you can't build socialism on the backs of a large proportion of the national or international population of the so-called darker races. So he's very critical of the socialists in the Socialist Party for, in a sense, postponing the race problem. Well, we'll deal with that. We'll do that when, when socialism arises. Du Bois says, no, you have to first deal with the race question and then and only then can we have a chance of moving beyond capitalism. Right, and he didn't last very long in the, the Socialist Party in the U.S., right? Right. 
He was there. He had joined for one year in 1911 and then quit. Um, that was for extraneous political reasons, but it was also because ultimately he did not have faith that the Socialist Party was sufficiently committed to confronting the race question. Um, there were exceptions that he um, acknowledged. There were trade unions that built interracial solidarity, but he was not convinced that there was a sufficient effort uh, in this direction. Now, in my mind, you know, at that point, he could have just turned his back on socialism uh, and on communism. And yet uh, a number of things happened, of course, during the course of his long life, one of which was visiting the USSR in 1926. Uh, how did he view the USSR before he visited in that year and, and then afterward? He was agnostic about the Russian Revolution in his editorials, for example, in the crisis. Many of his friends were very committed to it, um, and many were opposed, and he just took a, he didn't know, well, maybe, maybe not. Um, he was never an enthusiast, quite the opposite, and he was never an enthusiast for, for violence. But he went, as you said, he went to the Soviet Union in 1926. He was there for about three months. And when he left and came back, he said, if what I have seen is Bolshevism, if what I have heard with my ears is Bolshevism, then I am a Bolshevik. This was a pivotal moment in his relationship to the projects of socialism, and it became the originating moment becomes a Marxist. Until that time, he had a quite condescending view towards the writings of Marx and Engels. He had never studied them. Um, at Harvard, he had actually written a small, short essay on the labor theory of value, but never took Marx's writings really seriously. Um, Fisk, he never heard about Marx, according to his own biography. Um, and Germany, when he was working for uh, that PhD, um, he listened to the lecturers, Gustav Schmoller, for example, and they were perhaps socialists, but they didn't really have much time for Marx and Engels, were somewhat contemptuous and condescending towards them. And he adopted that view too. And he blames in one of his later books, a book called Russia and America, an interpretation, he blames, he blames his teachers for not actually giving him the the insights into the significance of the writings of Marx and Engels. After 1926, he becomes very committed to the writings of Marx and Engels. It's not altogether clear what he read. He, must, he was teaching Capital, Volume 1, when he returned to Atlanta University in 1934. Um, he may have read the German ideology. He obviously had read the Communist Manifesto. But he was quite limited his reading of Marx. But what is most extraordinary, as I think we're going to talk about it, is the way that he used Marxian ideas to understand this pivotal moment in the history of the United States, namely the period of Reconstruction. Or, actually, first the Civil War, then Reconstruction, and then what happened after Reconstruction. That's the voice of Michael Borvoy, teaches sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, he studied the interaction of race and class in Southern and Central Africa before turning to examine workplaces in the U.S., Hungary, and Russia. He's been president of the American Sociological Association and president of the International Sociological Association. We are talking about a thinker that Michael has engaged with, uh, especially in, in the last few years. That person is the enormously influential thinker, writer, sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois. And I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Right, the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War and Reconstruction. And one of Du Bois's magnum opuses is his book, Black Reconstruction, uh, which came out in 1935. And I think you refer to this text in at least one piece that I've read of yours as sort of marking a shift from, or maybe the culmination of a shift from this phenomenology of race 
to a black Marxist, a Marxist perspective, a Marxist analysis. And let's start with this. Um, what was the conventional view of Reconstruction uh, at the time in which Du Bois lived? At that time, Reconstruction was seen by white historians, conventional historians, the famous Dunning School. Reconstruction was seen as a unmitigated disaster that putting any power in the hands of African Americans, as happened with the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments, um, was a disastrous, false move and it was a period of history that was a great setback for the United States. Du Bois turns this argument upside down. As early as 1910, he tries to show, in an article he publishes um, in a major historical review, that there were many positive features of Reconstruction, features such as the expansion of the vote, not just to blacks but also to poor whites, the participation of African Americans in local politics and in national politics, um, new legislation around welfare, and particularly important for Du Bois was the expansion of education. Again, not just for African Americans, but also for poor whites. So for Du Bois's point of view, Reconstruction had an imagination in its actual practice of an interracial democracy, or an abolition democracy, as he called it at one point. And for him, the failure of Reconstruction, it lasted from, shall we say, 1865 to 1876, um, the failure of what he called a tragic failure um, because it bore the seeds of a much more open, freer, emancipated society. Right, and, and what did he think stood in the way of the emergence of the interracial democracy that he hoped would be the outcome of Reconstruction. What did he see standing in the way, and what did stand in the way of progress toward that end? Well, I should say, first of all, that this book is 700 pages long, and the print and the copy that I have is very small. This is Du Bois's magnum opus, and it is a very complicated story, both about the origins of the Civil War, the conduct of the Civil War, Reconstruction, and what happens after Reconstruction. Essentially, what happened, I think the historians, there's no dispute about many of the things that, that Du Bois brought to our attention, um, that the survival of Reconstruction depended upon the military presence um, of the North, Northern armies um, that were supporting the reordering of society and the pushing aside of the uh, dominant planter class and the expansion particularly of education. That this was all possible by virtue um, of the presence of the North. The North became committed to this project of expanding democracy in the South. During the period of Reconstruction, the white population backed the, the white working class, the poor whites, white farmers, um, engaged in terrorist struggles against the African Americans. The Ku Klux Klan was an outgrowth of such struggles um, and supported by the now declassed planter class. And so this was, even in the period of Reconstruction, this was a very violent period and African Americans were intimidated, um, but they were determined to actually push democracy forward. But as a result of the um, progress of Reconstruction, Northern, and this is, and this is Du Bois's view, Northern capital, having dispossessed the planter class, having, in a sense, abolished formal slavery, had got what it wanted and was prepared to strike a deal with the erstwhile planter class 
bringing the South back to the control of the plantar crust and withdrawing Northern support from the South. And so that is how Reconstruction ended. It was the result of the interests. It was what, what Du Bois calls the counter-revolution of, of capital, of property, he calls it. And it plays itself out in a complicated way through the politics of, of the United States and particularly in the North. Um, but what is important basically is the North withdrew from the South and the South was handed back to the planter class. And then we see the development of Jim Crow. But what is important for Du Bois is there was always the possibility of this interracial alliance. He was always looking for the possibility of white workers and black workers working together to actually build such an interracial democracy. But, as he says very eloquently in one of the last chapters in Black Reconstruction, the white workers were given the wages of whiteness. That is, they were given a psychological and public wage. That white workers were actually paid low amounts. Farmers found themselves in very difficult circumstances, but they did have privileged access to agencies of the state, such as the police, such as education, such as welfare, such as the law courts, had privileged access to these over African Americans, and on top of that, Du Bois argues, they had a psychological wage in the sense that they felt superior to the African American population. This was engineered, you might say, from above by the planter class who desperately needed, obviously, the support of the white workers and white farmers um, to make sure that there is no class alliance, interracial class alliance between blacks and whites. And so Du Bois is always seeing, is always seeing the world from the possibility of some sort of interracial democracy, interracial cooperation that in the end fails time and again. Um, but he never loses hope. I mean, one of the remarkable things about Du Bois's life is how he faces despair but never loses hope. It's that combination of hope and despair that um, makes, uh, that makes his, his writing so interesting and so important. My guest is Michael Borovoy. He teaches sociology at UC Berkeley. We're talking about um, a number of things he's written in recent years about W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, I'm focusing on an essay which will appear in the forthcoming volume, the Oxford Handbook of W.E.B. Du Bois. It's called The Making of Black Marxism. The subtitle is The Complementary Perspectives of W.E.B. Du Bois and Franz Fanon, although we, we are focusing on Du Bois today. And of course, we can really only scratch the surface of this uh, impressive thinker's opus and his trajectory today. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. You've talked about race dynamics. You've talked to some degree about class dynamics. I'll talk more about where Marx, Marxist thinking comes into this book, Black Reconstruction, again, authored by W.E.B. Du Bois, published in 1935. Does it appear mostly in the sense of the kind of, I don't know whether you would call it ideal society, that Du Bois is proposing or positing, or does it also come out in terms of uh, class conflict apart from this you know, notion that if only black and white workers could get together, then real social change could happen? Yes. Yes, I think you're right, C.S. I mean, I think it, it's, it's both those factors. See, when he writes Darkwater in 1920, he postulates this imaginary socialism. But now, in 1935, writing about the period of Reconstruction, it is not an imaginary utopia. It's a real utopia. It's a utopia that grows up in the struggles within the period of Reconstruction. The interracial democracy, the, the seeds of an interracial democracy are actually being sown in the very ways in which history is unfolding in the period of Reconstruction. So I call that a sort of real utopia as opposed to the imaginary utopia of, of, of Darkwater. Um, but you ask, and that, that's a Marxist idea that's, you know, that the alternative world will grow up in the existing world. 
But there's a, your second point is really crucial um, in terms of, of, of a Marxist analysis. I mean, what is remarkable, you just look at the chapter titles. Chapter one, Black Worker. And that, by the way, includes an analysis of global capitalism and the way in which the development of the Industrial Revolution and the demand for cotton intensifies slavery um, in the first half of the 19th century, which leads to um, the Civil War in the end. So anyway, the point is um, that the first chapter, black worker. Second chapter, white worker. Third chapter, the planter. So he's doing a class analysis of this of the pre-existing order before Reconstruction and before the Civil War. And the fourth chapter, the most provocative and discussed chapter, um, is called The General Strike. Now, Du Bois is arguing that African Americans were crucial in the success of the Northern armies in the Civil War. Half a million African Americans from the plantations escape, risking their lives in the process, hoping that they will be recruited by the Northern armies. In the beginning, the Northern armies wanted to have nothing to do with these fugitive African-Americans, fugitive enslaved population. But slowly but surely, as the armies realized that they depended, that they depended upon the support um, of African-Americans, so they recruited them, and so the African-Americans became a central plank in the possibility of the Northern armies winning. And indeed, that was the basis of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, um, is the recognition of the dependence of the North on these fugitive enslaved populations in the South. As, they, as the Northern armies moved around the South, so they were inundated um, by the fugitives from the plantations. And so, yeah, the, he calls this a general strike. Now, this is, this is a controversial claim to make but what he's trying to say is that yes this is like a proletariat this is like a working class revolt um, and he wants to liken he wants to liken the enslaved to a working class an industrial working class but now it's an enslaved working class but it's still a working class of workers and he also most importantly wants to give agency to African Americans that they were present and made history themselves, where they were making history from below. Of course, the contemporary historiography of the time in 1935 gave no credence to the role of African Americans in the victory of the Northern Armies. But now Du Bois is centering the, the importance of the African Americans um, who risk their lives in leaving the plantations and were embraced in the end, in the end, were embraced by the Northern armies. What about the New Deal? We are talking about the 1930s here. Uh, du Bois, gosh, he was probably in the 1930s. He was, yeah, 50, 60 years old. Um, what did Du Bois think about what the New Deal offered and in fact provided uh, to African-Americans? Actually, when he writes, uh, you know, it's in 1935, Du Bois is, is 60, 60, what, 67 years old. One might think that he was ending his sort of productive life, but it was almost just beginning. Um, during the period that he was writing Black Reconstruction, and he had moved um, back to Atlanta University having fought with the NAACP, complained the NAACP was, was, was basically, from his point of view, too reformist, was too legalistic, um, and was not really addressing effectively the issues of racism in, in the United States. That was Du Bois's view. Now, Du Bois himself, um, one, of the, one of his parting speeches was called Negro Nation Within a Nation, a Negro Nation Within a Nation. And this was the idea that, um, yes, there is segregation and we have to take advantage of the segregation by constituting ourselves as an independent, not necessarily nation, but definitely a community. And he was very concerned and committed to the idea of a cooperative commonwealth that will be the collective organization of an African-American economy. Now, this ideas, these ideas have been floated in, in slightly different way by the 
Communist Party of the United States, at that time quite strong, um, in its so-called Black Belt thesis, which was the argument that there should be a sort of national independent struggle of African Americans within, uh, within the United States, rather than an integrative project, which was this project of the NAACP. But anyway, Du Bois was at this time um, committed to this project of an um, independent or semi-independent economy within the United States that would reorganize the relationship uh, relations um, within the African-American community. So yes, so he had a quite a radical project at the time and this of course, as I said, was what really broke the foundations on which he broke with the NAACP or the NAACP broke with him, which is why he entered, went back to Atlanta University. I should add that, of course, you know, this is, as you started, this is the New Deal. This is a, this is a period of experimentation. Um, and this is a period of, of, of the rise of the possibilities and imagination of socialism in, in many quarters. And so he's, he's embracing the radicalism of the New Deal, but he is also recognizing that African-Americans are being somewhat left out of the New Deal projects. And so he he designs this alternative uh, way of, of, of reconstructing the racial order within the United States. That's Michael Borovoy, UC Berkeley-based sociologist. His essay, The Making of Black Marxism, The Complementary Perspectives of W.E.B. Du Bois and Franz Fanon, is part of the forthcoming volume, The Oxford Handbook of W.E.B. Du Bois. Michael's books include Public Sociology, Symbolic Violence, Conversations with Bourdieu, Manufacturing Consent, Changes in the Labor Process under Monopoly Capitalism, and The Extended Case Method, Four Countries, Four Decades, Four Great Transformations, and One Theoretical Tradition. On the next Against the Grain, we'll present part two of my interview with Michael, which addresses, among other things, how Du Bois understood the post-colonial situation in Africa and how, in Michael Bourvoy's view, Du Bois transformed Marxism. You'll also hear Michael talk about his latest book, Public Sociology, which has been called an intellectual autobiography. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>